was supposed to be with her in Abuja this week, um, alongside my trips to Anambra, Potakot, and Ugeli to talk about to talk to the people who are the front lines of the national protest and movement called NSAS, and also victims and survivors of police brutality. Unfortunately, because of the events of the past past few days, I've been unable to leave Lagos, but I'm honored that she could join me today. You know how already, her name is Aisha Yasufu. She's a businesswoman and an activist. And she's my guest on today's special NSA series of With Shugo. Aisha, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Yule, for having me. It's always a pleasure. I want to talk about, um, you know, there's a lot. I've always wanted to sit down with you and interview you. And, yeah. you know, um, and that's why I wanted to do this in the studio, but it's okay. Um, there is, I mean, you and I, I'm a different type of storyteller because I'm not just, you know, the typical standout journalist. I've been involved, mm -hmm. I've been on the streets, we've been on the streets, you know, for the Bring Back Our Girls protest, we were on the streets. But I mean, the first time I saw you in action, even though we've always coordinated, was the end of killings protest about three, four years ago under this president. Mm -hmm. and. You've been out, whether you are alone or not, whether there are 20 people on the streets with you or not, whether there are 50 people on the streets with you or not, you know, um, you, this, you've been consistently showing up. And I remember I came to Abuja once to just sit down with you and do a private interview and say, what is striving you? Mm -hmm. And so I want to ask that question again, you know, for a, a generation that has just met you, mm -hmm. for those of us that have known you for, more than half a decade now, for people who have been on the streets with you, what has kept you on the streets? Amam poor, no Amam poor, picture or no picture, viral or no viral, PDP or APC, what has kept you? Thank you so much, Chude, uh, for, for having me. And, and thank you so much for always doing this. I mean, a lot of people have been able to talk, you know, heart to heart and be a place where they can bother just being with you. You're doing so much that you don't even understand. It goes beyond just an interview. It's a place where people feel safe, and which is mm -hmm. very important, and they can share uh, a, piece, a piece of themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. For me, uh, uh, when people ask me, what is it? Uh, this is who I've always been all my life. And uh, I've always been vocal and I hate injustice. And I am one person that would ensure that my voice is heard, even if as a child, it got me into lots of trouble. But for me personally, on the issue of Nigeria, I made a pact with myself, between myself and God. When I turned 40, on my 40th birthday, on the 12th of December, 2013, I said to myself, I had become the problem of Nigeria. How did I become the problem of Nigeria? By my silence, by my silence on national issue, uh, national issues, I wasn't saying anything. Yes, I, I, I fought injustice within the circle that I was in, but I said to myself, there are people who are in the same condition I was as a teenager uh, right now who need voices, who I'm failing because as a teenager, I was angry at Nigeria. I was angry at the fact that they were adults who did nothing with all the corruption that were going on, with all the bad governance, with the poverty and, and all of that. And I realized that I had become uh, that adult who wasn't doing anything. And I said to myself on that, that I said, I gave the first 40 years of my life to myself and the people in my immediate environment that now I'm going to give 
the next 40 years of my life, if God gives me that up to 40 years and uh, to Nigeria, I'm going to devote it exclusively uh, to Nigeria. For me, no matter what Nigeria throws at me, I'm not going to give up on Nigeria. I'm fighting for the unborn generation the way I wish others had fought for me before I came to Nigeria. For me, that's the thing that, that, that keeps me going. What, what gives you the capacity to just keep going even if you are being fired from both sides? Uh, okay, uh, so so you just mentioned yesterday. I got uh, uh, I saw a missed call from from someone, uh, and then she sent me a heartfelt uh, message because she said I was being attacked or, uh, on Facebook. I had done a video in Hausa where I was right. saying to the North that they need to know that they shouldn't look at themselves as slaves. They need to uh, make their voices be heard and make the match with the insecurity that is happening in the North and all of that. And so it got a lot of backlash and people are insulted. People are saying all sorts of things. And then she was like, oh, she's so sorry. for." And I was like, it's normal. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, so for me, uh, part of the things that I, I, I go with is the fact that I say insults and praises are people's opinion. They are not my reality. So when somebody comes and the person mm. insults me or the person criticizes me or the person says one thing or the other, it's the person's opinion. That's what the person thinks about me. But that's mm. not what I think about myself. Also, mm. when somebody comes and, the person, and people praise me or pray for me or have good words to say about me, it's mm. also their opinion. It's not my reality. My mm. reality is when I am alone with myself, what do I see? When I'm mm. alone with myself and I look in the mirror, do I like the person that I'm seeing? When I'm alone mm. with myself and I'm all, all alone with my thoughts, do mm. I like what is in my head? Because every one of us, we have a moral compass, whether we like it or not. Whatever the world is saying, deep inside of us, we know whether we're doing the right thing or we aren't doing the right thing. And for me, when I look at myself and I'm happy with what I see in the mirror, I'm sitting down, I'm all alone with myself and I'm happy with my thoughts, that is all. One of the things, that I think strikes people and makes like the image, you know, what they are calling the Nigerian Statue of Liberty image of you. What is striking is how you are female first, obviously still in a misogynistic, largely society. Mm -hmm. You are a Muslim where yeah. Muslim women are stereotyped, you know, mm -hmm. as quiet, it is it is you you it's almost as if you hi, you've hijacked the negative stereotype mm -hmm. and you've represented it because you are in the full boca, you know. So mm -hmm. You know, people look at it and say, okay, that one, it must be that her husband asked her that people should not see her body, she mm -hmm. must be quiet, she can't talk, it is, it is, you are like the opposite of everything they expect a person that looks like you to be. When people confront you with that image, at first, how, how is that the case? How, how is that the case that you are so different from the stereotype? And people mm -hmm. confront you and say, oh, we didn't expect you to be like this, because when they see you, they expect mm -hmm. something. How do you usually respond to it? Well, it's been, I started wearing the, the hijab in 1992. So I was, uh, I was 18. Uh, right. By so yourself? Yeah, by myself. Oh, absolutely. And when I started covering up, my parents didn't like it. People around me didn't like it. Uh, there was quite really? a lot of backlash. How can you, as a young girl, and then you're starting to cover up, uh, who is going to marry you and all of that stuff. And even, you know, what people should know, like, in the north, this hijab wasn't a thing even then. I remember the first person I saw with hijab was uh, uh, was uh, was my secondary school uh, Islamic studies teacher, and me and her we all, we, we we then used to call her ninja, and somehow somehow 
myself and her, we didn't gel because there were some teachers where I'm always vocal at the way I am. And then sometimes there was issues. So I even I wasn't even attending uh, Islamic uh, IRK. I would rather attend CRK. Okay. So when they are in their IRK, I'm in my CRK class. I didn't care because we're having issues. I would, I would stay there and, 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 do, and do all of that. So when I started wearing the hijab, it was quite a major issue, both in my family, within the family and people around like, oh, have you, talked, have you become an Izala? What's going on? But I am one person who I do what I want to do, how I want to do it and when I want to do it, even as a child. And that's the reason I say to people, look, I don't, I don't seek for permission for people to be who I want to be. And the reason why I'm comfortable with anybody, whoever somebody is, whatever you say you are, what you want to do, for me, it's your business. Because I know if I was that person, I wouldn't need anybody's permission. I will do it anyway. Whether society wants it or society does not want it, that's society's business. This one is my business. I'm living my life in this space and it's my life. And so when I started that, I, I, I was wearing that. When I met my husband, uh, my, my husband, the first time, you know, we said to me that, why are you dressed like Hausa? I looked at him like, I'm not dressed like Hausa, I'm dressed like a Muslim. I'm like, okay. And he, he confessed that he used to be afraid of women, people who cover. But of course, I made him understand the fact that, look, this is non-negotiable. My hijab is non-negotiable. And of course, when I started, also now started wearing socks, I actually do the exercise, I cover my legs. Yes, yes. That was years after we were married. I'm like, what is this again? I'm like, this is who I am. And everything. So for me, it's, there has always been that stereotype. I've met people who looked at me and said, can you speak English? I've met people who, first of all, they see me. And somehow I have I, I have a meek demeanor. And so yeah. when people see me, they do, they look, okay, this quiet woman, she can't do anything. And I, I don't mind. And I like surprising people. For me, one of the things that I don't like with what I have now is the fact that I have lost my anonymity. I was the kind of person that I would go to somewhere and I would just quietly sit. You would think I know nothing. You think I, some people assume I don't even speak English. Some people assume I've not gone to school, and especially when I'm at an event to speak. And it's when I start talking, you see people looking up, Whoa, who is that? I've been to banks and, you know, you're greeting the, the person behind the counter. The person isn't even answering you. And then they open your account and they're like, good afternoon, ma. <laughs> And I know the greetings are not for me. They are for the whatever they are saying. Nah, the people nah, are saying. So I, 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 and I love it. And I'm never one person who wants to be seen. No, no, no. I prefer just, I prefer to be, uh, to be underrated. Mm. I love that. And then the surprise that comes. So, so I always, I, I always have that. And people always feel, okay, you're supposed to be a Muslim woman. You're supposed not to talk. You're supposed not to have a voice. But one of the things that I use even as a child is the power of knowledge. Like my parents, when they will start with this, it's for me to just go, okay, in the Hadith is this, in the Quran is this. And one of the things that Muslim women in history have been very, very ferocious, very demanding. They made demands even on the Prophet. They, they went to war with men. There was even one that everybody had run away. It was, it was a woman that guarded the Prophet, And so we have a whole lot of that. But what, because we have a society that is so patriarchal, where they want a situation whereby the woman will be suppressed. They don't care about the religion or anything. What they yeah. care about their own uh, op for them to keep being oppressors so they will yeah. feed you what they want to feed you irrespective of what uh, the knowledge uh, it's all about today the day that we're doing this interview is the morning after the president gave his speech a speech that demoralized anybody that i know i have not seen anybody and i'm sure there are people but i haven't seen anybody who didn't think that the speech was not wise <laughs> 
<laughs> and not just not wise, was uh, deeply insensitive and lacking in empathy, you know. Um, for a new generation or for a younger generation, they're just meeting this kind of lack of empathy for the first mm. time, you know. They, I think they don't understand that this is central to the character of Nigerian government often. Mm. And that, you know, um, even for people like myself who voted and vigorously campaigned for this president in 2015, one year into it, we just did that, ah, <laughs> this is not the way we thought that, I mean, for myself, this was not the way it was mm. supposed to be. But for a younger generation, especially and for many people, they are shocked that even at this moment, the president doesn't act to expectation. Many of them are like, oh, they've given up on Nigeria, they want to go out of the country. Nigeria is irredeemable, it is finished. They are speaking about the protest in past terms, like when we had the protest, you know. What do you say to people like that? I say, as somebody who has been on the street consistently, literally, for the mm -hmm. past more than half a decade, mm -hmm. what do you say to them? Uh, the first thing I would say for those who are thinking of, or, you know, leaving the country and going elsewhere, the fact that even when you leave the country and Paraventure, you get the citizenship of another country, you are now a dual citizen, you would not still feel fulfilled because you're coming from a nation that is broken, where there's mm -hmm. no, that, that really it's not a strong nation, it's not among the top nations in the world. And so people will still look down on you. Wherever you are, whether you are in diaspora or in Nigeria, you, we must ensure that we get Nigeria working. We must fix Nigeria. We must get Nigeria working. So that in that way, even those who are in diaspora, those who have dual citizenship, people there, we know that they are there because they want to, not because they have to. There's a difference. For example, an, a Nigerian-American is different from a British-American. British America has the respect that they also have a country that is good. It's a choice that they want to be Americans. But you, with your Nigerian America, they will be looking at you as, ah, you didn't have a choice because you were looking for where to run away from that. So, it, so it's very important, uh, people. I always make this uh, uh, clarification so that people will understand the reason why it's important uh, to fight for, for, for Nigeria. In terms of the president, I, I was really surprised that people expected uh, something different or something empathy for the president or understand he has never shown anything. But the thing about Nigeria is that we all live in our individual bubbles and people uh, don't care what is happening to another person. We don't have empathy. We don't have empathy. We only yeah. care about when it happens to us. Because if we had empathy, we would have yeah. seen that the president has cons consistently been this way, the way it has, he, has, he has gone. I mean, over 300 Shiites were killed. The president never said a word. Yeah. Uh, until when finally, I think in the course of one a conversation, he mentioned something which shows lack of empathy. Over 300 people were killed by military, came down, women, children, men were gunned down, mass barrier, they were burnt, nothing. IPOP, IPOP were killed in this country, gone down, nothing came, he didn't say anything. So for me, yesterday's speech, even though I see a lot of people depressed, what I'm saying to them is that you forced the president to speak. You, he didn't want to speak. That's why he was saying to you, uh, so that you don't think that you people are the ones calling the shots. You know, you took my my uh, uh, earlier your demands. When I say that we, we met your demands, you took it as a sign of weakness. That is coming from him to say that I don't want you to think that you were the ones that forced me to talk, but you did force me to talk. He didn't want to talk, and that is power in itself. There is no the president doesn't have empathy. He doesn't care. I always say something, you know, when I talk about the president, I say he's incompetent, he's clueless, he's corrupt, he's inept and a failure. 
He's also callous, he's heartless, he's irresponsible and pathetic. I'm not joking. They are just in. On the 14th of January, 2016, I sat across the president and I saw this disdain, this lack of empathy for him. That meeting was a meeting of the Bring Back Our Girls movement and the Chibok parent with the president. The Minister of Women Affairs then had berated the parents. And, you know, the president didn't want to come for that meeting. We all insisted, even the uh, parents of Chibok, that we are not going anywhere until the president came in. The president came in angrily. He, 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 did, he didn't even want to listen to the Chibok parents. It was Dr. Obias Zekwesili that insisted that he had to listen to the Chibok okay. parents because they are the primary owners of this uh, grief and this pain. It's not yeah. the Bring Back Our Girls movement. Before he, uh, it was prevailed on him, he listened to, there were two that came in. And when they told, you know, talking to him in terms of, it's just like what has happened whereby NSAS protesters came to tell the president that, look, oh, the, the police are killing us in the cover of darkness. And then what did the president do? He sent more people to kill them. The same thing on that day, they sort of like said to the president, this is what the Minister of Women Affairs had done to us, had said to us, and the president was indeed. He told them on that day that he had reached the peak of his career as a military man and as a civilian. And on that day, I looked at him and I said, wow, how do you say this to parents who, whose children have been abducted? And these are poor people who, for them, their children are everything. They're, when you are poor, your children are your investment. They are the ones that will grow up and begin to take care of you. They are your pension. You have nothing. Everything of yours is invested uh, in your children. It's not like rich people that have assets and all of that. The only assets poor people have are their children. And these mm -hmm. people, parents, their children were taken away. You're telling them that you've reached the peak of your career as a military man and as a politician. How, how, I don't know how to describe that lack of empathy. And so, and he went out to tell them that they needed to be grateful. He was working, he was doing this, fighting anti corruption. Then there was the Niger Delta Avengers issue. He was dealing with that. There was absolute disconnect and lack of empathy. And I remember that day coming out of the meeting, I started tweeting. And when the president finished speaking, you know how rappers with we raise their hands and let the mic fall. That was what he did. The mic banged on the on the on the table, and then he stood up and he stomped out. Mm. I remember sitting that day. On that day, on the 14th of January, 2016, I realized that Nigeria didn't have a president. And I looked across at that because I was actually sitting across uh, from the president, and I looked at him and I like that man can never and will never be my president, and I don't see him. As one. And when he stormed out, you know, normally as a protocol, people will stand up uh, because the president was walking away. I refused to stand up. On a normal day, even when I go to events when there's a uh, guest, the guest of honor or the whatever it is, I always stand up. But on that day, as the president walked, and he walked when he was turning away, walked in front of me, I refused to stand up. Because that man, now he had no, no respect for me, the way he had treated our Chibok parents, and he didn't even connect with them. He left. Not a word to say to them, sorry, I understand your pain, I understand what you're going through. And when we left on that day, I couldn't even look at it into the eyes of the Chibok because I saw, you know, they were defeated. I saw that just like death, everything shut down because the hope they had was taken uh, away from them. So, and, you know, there was so much backlash. People attacked me, people insulted me, people said all sorts of things for that particular thing. So because a lot of people looked the other way, 
So that's why they're expecting that the president will say anything different. The president wasn't going to say anything different because this is who he is. This is what he has constantly shown. And it's just that Nigerians don't care. When it happens to another person, they move on. They think it's none of their business. And that's the reason why I always say to people, look, when something is happening to another person, you need to take uh, you need to take interest in it. You need to take it as your, as your own. You need to feel that empathy because yesterday's victims were one survivors. Today's victims were yesterday's survivors, and tomorrow's victims would be to today's survivors. I always ask, who is next? It was once bring back our girls. It was once Shiites. It was once IPOP. Now it is NSAS. And tomorrow there are some people who are who aren't paying attention today because they they they, they don't care about the NSAS cause. Tomorrow is going to be their turn. But for me, what I think people should take out of this is the fact that look, he spoke and you forced him to speak, and the youth have gotten their voices. That is the most important thing. And we move. That's the thing. Keep fighting. Keep making the mat. Yeah, we move. Keep making the mat. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Even like the protesters said, the that all I kept telling the youth, look, don't take this as, oh, today, today, today. This No, it's a marathon. You've already shifted the conversation. You've already shown how resolute you are. You refuse to move. Government brought in talks. Government brought in police. Government brought in military. Government brought in propaganda. Government brought in threats. Accounts of uh, people were being uh, blocked and everything. They just kept going out. You kept moving. And that's the most important thing. And that's what they should hold on to. The fact is that the Nigerian youth now have a voice. And nobody will call them lazy again. They had the government where they wanted the government, even though they use brute force, they use their normal shenanigans of bringing in talks. Talk, and I, I, I make, I've been making this, this uh, clear that talks did not infiltrate uh, the NSAS movement or join yeah. the protesters. Talks were brought in by government. We've seen videos where military vehicles, police vehicles were used to convey uh, drugs, uh, talks under the supervision of a security agent. And what happened was that they attacked the NSAS movement, uh, uh, the, uh, attacked the NSAS protesters, uh, they, they, they destroyed their properties, they even killed some, sadly. And when they were done, they turned on, on government and, and the rest of the society. Why? Because Nigeria is always the place where the people look the other side. People will rather blame the uh, victim rather than the perpetrator. And instead of Nigerians to call the government to rein in their talk, they did it. And the talks went haywire. And we've seen the destruction that we've seen are people who are in office who are ready to destroy Nigeria just to perpetuate themselves in power. That's what they do during the election. They bring in talks. They ensure they drive people, make people afraid of coming out to vote so that they only have the people that they can weaponize their poverty and weaponize their illiteracy. So for me, the youth of Nigeria, they have made me proud. They have worked together. They have shown that the, it, it's a lie when they say Nigerians cannot be united on, on an issue. They have shown that they can throw away the generational hatred. They can throw away the 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 the, the uh, what do you call it? Uh, religious the religious differences, ethnic differences, uh, gender differences, uh, uh, economic status differences, educational qualification differences. They can all put that aside and come right. together and work for one purpose, for one for the singularity of purpose. And they did that, and they did that in the most amazing way. They did that. But with their perfect organization, uh, with their co co cohesion, with working together, they said they didn't have leaders, but they were the worst. They, were, they were all leaders. It was the Nigerian government that actually didn't have leader. And you could see them floundering and just being all over the place. But the entrance protesters were so organized and they were able to put a lot of things in place. You saw how they took care of their welfare, their medical, their security. Government took all of this away. So the extent hospital, some hospitals were turning them back. And yet they were able to bring 
provide their own private security, getting security, had even a helpline where government doesn't have a helpline that I can call, but there was a call, there was a helpline that was put together by the NSAS protesters. And for me, that is amazing. The fight is not to continue. We move, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Keep going on. Look at what needs to be done. The five for five demand is still there. Evaluation and monitoring has to, to be put in place and, mm. and, and to ensure that these things are being met. Check the timeline. If nothing is done again, hey, the streets are always there. You can always make demands uh, in different ways. And they, they mm. did that. So I think they, they really should be proud of themselves and continue uh, the whole thing. And that is to say, continue evaluation, continue insisting that those five demands, all, uh, all protesters uh, must be arrested, protesters must be released. Uh, there must be justice and, and compensation for the victim, for the uh, families of victims of uh, police brutality. Uh, there must be an uh, uh, independent body to ensure the prosecution of, of these police officers who have been the ones to, to, to perpetrate this act. Uh, there must be a psychological evaluation of disbanded SARS members before any of them is transferred to any unit and the ones that have been found are culpable in any crime should should be prosecuted and finally uh, the increase in the in the police salaries these are the demands of the NSAC I don't see anything that is out of this world but then we have a government that is incompetent that isn't listening and they think that brute force is what they will use when just acquiescing to these demands and putting things in place would have worked, made it work. I see a lot of people who come to say that, oh, but the government has said that they, they, they were going to follow up on the demands. And uh, why were the protesters still on the street? And I said, this is a government that says one thing and does another, and their words are never their bonds. So nobody trusts them, nobody believes them. In June, 2019, the president received a report from the panel he had set up in 2018 uh, to look at uh, 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 the brutality of SARS at, because there had been complaints from the public and also from uh, 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 what do you call them, uh, uh, CSOs, civil society organizations. And they set up a panel for the reform of SARS. And the president collect, received this report on the 3rd of June, 2019. And he tweeted that in six months, they were going to implement the recommendations in the panel. And guess what? It is 16 months after and nothing was implemented. So that's the reason why the NSAS protesters said they were not going to leave the street until they begin uh, to see action. Right. Thank you so much, Aisha. This has been an amazing conversation, as I thought it was. Thank you. And, you know, you continue to inspire me every day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here, always. Well done.